Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius Podcast Series. I have Oded Rechavi. Uh, he's at the University of Tel Aviv. He has a lab called the Rechavi Lab. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, epigenetic inheritance and uh, his research. So, Oded, thank you for coming. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, if you don't uh, mind, tell me about your research. What does it involve? We, have, we study many different things. Uh, um, the most relevant thing to, to, to this particular podcast is we start, we're using worms that are called C. elegans, which is a very important model for biology, uh, to study inheritance of uh, traits between generations. So uh, inheritance of parental responses or even memories between uh, different generations. When you say um, inheritance of memories, is that learned behavior or what, what's an example of an inherited memory? Yeah, so um, memory, normally when we think of memories, we think about the memories that are encoded by the brain. But there could be other types of memories also. Any uh, lesson that we learn from the past and we change our behavior as a result um, constitutes as a memory uh, for me. I mean, of course, there are different uh, uh, definitions. But we, uh, in general, are interested in all in how parental responses to the environment affect uh, not only their responses in the future, but also uh, their progeny's responses. And um, in theory, I mean, according to, to regular gen- uh, biology and what we know about DNA-based genetics, that shouldn't happen. But, but, but in worms, we, we now know of a different alternative inheritance mechanism that does allow some responses to be inherited to the next generations, including responses uh, that were that were triggered by um, the nervous system of the previous generation, by, by uh, brain activity. So uh, what kind of activities did you set up for the worms to do to see if they were inherited? And, you know, when knowledge or memories were inherited, what did that allow the inherited worms to do? Well, first of all, the, the first thing that we've shown, and this is something that uh, I started doing about 10 years ago, uh, when I when I, when I went to do my postdoc with uh, Oliver Hobart in in Colombia, was to see whether um, memory of viral infections can transmit to the next generations. So a sort of a immunological memory, although in the worm um, it doesn't involve uh, dedicated immune cells like it does in in humans. And back then, what we've shown is that when you infect worms with viruses, when you challenge them with different uh, viruses, and we used artificial ones and Later on, people use also more natural viruses. Um, the worm produces uh, an immune response that transmits also to the next generation and persists for multiple generations. And uh, this was very interesting, but what was more interesting is that this was a, a, an excellent system to study how such a, a weird uh, thing could happen. And we found that, that it happens via the inheritance, not of changes in the DNA sequence, but uh, through changes in, in, in the molecules that are called small RNAs, which is one type of RNA molecule that regulates uh, gene activity. And, we, and after that, we continue to show that also uh, the worm 
transmits to the next generation uh, responses um, to starvation, to very strong starvation that they encounter during development. And later other people shown that <laughs> um, also uh, temperature stress and, uh, and stress that caused by by different uh, bacterial pathogens can transmit to the next generation. And, and using all these different essays, we, we really learned a lot about, uh, about inheritance of small RNAs, which really follows different rules from the uh, DNA-based inheritance, which is something that, that, I mean, the scientific community know for, for many, many years since uh, the, the monk Mendel studied it in his garden um, about 150 years ago. So where are um, small RNAs kept inside the worms do they have a repository where they stay you know in every cell like the nucleus or are they free moving so small rnas um the the type of small rnas that are inherited between generations in c elegans in these nematodes they are um they are acting in the nucleus and they function by regulating gene activity by preventing genes from being expressed uh, however they have a life also outside of the nucleus because uh, they need to get outside of the nucleus to get amplified. There's an amplification system for these small RNAs, um, and this takes place uh, by enzymes, dedicated enzymes that are called RNA-dependent RNA polymerases that use RNA as template to self-amplify. And we've shown in this paper about the virus that these, uh, these um, enzymes are needed for transgenerational responses to, to transmit between generations. And um, so, so, they, they, the, so they function, they... they they, they are active, they, they affect gene expression by acting in the nucleus, but they also go out of the nucleus to the, to the uh, cytoplasm or to specific um, uh, granules that reside outside of the nucleus. Um, and smaller RNAs are made in the worm in different tissues. The one to get transmitted to the next generation, they have to reach the germline because every animal is, is, starts its life from uh, um, the fusion of the sperm and the egg from the germ cell. So to get inherited, the small RNAs from whatever, whatever tissue needs to get to the germline. And what we recently showed is, is and this is very related also to the memory question, uh, is that small RNAs that are made in the nervous system can cause transgenerational effects. So we've shown that if you change the population of small RNAs just in the, in the brain of the worm, in, the, in its nervous system, this is enough to generate a response that transmits across, across multiple generations, uh, regulates gene activity in the in the grandchildren and grand-grandchildren, and also uh, via this control over gene activity also controls the, the, the descendant's behavior, their ability to find food uh, particularly. Does the effect uh, get less and less over generations if the stimulus is not there? This is something that we do know happens uh, when you trigger an artificial response. So you can feed the worm and this was something that was shown 20 years ago by Mello, Craig Mello and, and Andrew Fire and they, um, in the study that they, they did to, to identify these uh, mechanisms of uh, regulatory RNAs that, eventually, that, that uh, awarded them with the Nobel Prize. Back then, 20 years ago, they've shown uh, that if you feed worms with, with RNA artificially, this uh, also affects the progeny immediate project. Later, it was shown to also submit across multiple generations. And we know that the response typically uh, peters out after a while. And normally, uh, in most of the worms in the population, it stops after three to five generations. And uh, originally, because there wasn't any better idea, people thought that maybe the RNAs just dilute. Uh, the RNAs that the parents make just dilute until uh, there's, no, there's nothing left after three to five generations. But, but we thought that this is impossible because every worm produces 
250 babies. So uh, if you so so the dilution factor across generations just you know, it becomes exponential and totally um, impossible because after four generations, 250 uh, times 250 times 250 times 250 uh, equals to something like four billions, which is completely uh, homeopathic and would never work. Instead, we found that there is a mechanism that limits the duration of the response, and we published uh, a paper about it, about uh, how it works. Uh, um, it's a sort of a repressive feedback loop, and, and this mechanism li limits the response typically to three to five generations, but we, can, we know how to hack the mechanism, to hack this timer, and get responses to last a lot longer, even hundreds. Of and also, the response stops after a few generations at the population level, but very recently, we published a preprint that shows that there's big difference between different individuals in the population. Some of them have very long-lasting responses and some very short-lasting. So have you, have you been able to figure out the inception of, you know, you, you expose the worms to a stimulus and then they start to change. It manifests in their small RNA at some point. But have you been able to watch the cascade or the process and figure out how it starts and how it finishes? Um, it depends on, on, on what it uh, means to, to actually watch it. So we found that exposing the worms to different uh, environmental stresses leads to changes in small RNAs that also transmit to the next generation and affect the next generation. Exactly how the environment changes the, small, the, the endogenous small RNAs that the worms make is, is still a, a big question, and we don't know exactly. When it comes to starvation, we found that exposing the worms to, to starvation lead to the production of small RNAs that regulate nutrition-related genes. And this could be because the transcription of, uh, of, nutrition, of these nutrition-related genes somehow uh, leads to their silencing or to, their, uh, to the re um, creation of small RNAs that regulate the same genes. It's possible, but there are still many unknowns about how small RNAs are made in response to particular stimuli and particular st uh, challenges. So what's your near-term goal? What are you looking at right now to try to figure out? <laughs> so... The, the, there are many, many open questions. We want to know more about the heritable small RNAs, how they regulate behavior in the next generations. In our last paper, we identified one gene target that's regulated by transgenerationally inherited small RNAs that start in the brain, uh, which affects behavior, but we don't know how it continues from there. How does it affect behavior? So this is something that I want to uh, study. A big question that we're studying, which is more uh, long-term, is can these processes affect evolution. This is an alternative inheritance mechanism, and, 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 and it's, it's not clear at all whether it can uh, change evolution, the, the process of evolution or not. Normally, when we think about evolution, we're thinking about long-lasting, um, about responses that take many, many generations. Uh, and here, most of the responses stop after a while. Can this process nevertheless change um, the process of evolution or speciation, uh, or can it become hardwired in the, in, the, in the genome, in the DNA-based genome? These are the questions that I'm most interested in. But there are so many open questions, really, that would be busy for, for a long time. Um, do you, if you consider evolution instead as like a continual adaptation, it seems to make sense that uh, you know, these organisms would be exposed to stimuli. They would change themselves and adapt, you know, at least on the small RNA level. Do you see any changes in the, at the DNA level? Uh, uh, not yet, but we're very interested in, in, in looking for that now. So this is something that we're actively looking at to see whether changing these small RNAs can somehow change the DNA. Well, like, again, how would a small RNA first 
come into existence. It, it's created in various places in the cell. But, um, you know, again, have you been able to look into the early stages of the process somehow right. and see so, the, so, the first creation of these? Right. So there are different types of small RNAs. Some small RNAs, like microRNAs, those uh, who know a little bit uh, about uh, the biology of non-coding RNAs, they are acting like genes, regulated like other genes, um, is the promoters that are activated by transcription factors that can be um, that, that can be expressed in response to different stimuli or developmental stages and so on. So just like regular genes, other smaller RNAs, like the one that get inherited between generations, uh, like endogenous siRNAs, for example, they are made uh, they, so they tile the entire length of their uh, target genes, and they are they could be made uh, in response to um, expression of their targets, or maybe in response to expressions of, of somewhat aberrant targets that look foreign to the worms. It's not exactly clear, but there are all kinds of feedback loops that regulate gene activity. And small RNAs seems to be just one of these uh, player, one of these players that, that function in, in, in gene regulation, and they can be regulated themselves on many different levels. So, are you hoping to? Uh to find out if there's changes in the underlying DNA? Is that your next step or what, uh, yes, this what is would be a big breakthrough for you? So this is definitely one of the goals. Uh, we want to know uh, what are the limits to RNA inherited. So what type of responses can be inherited? Uh, uh, um, what's shared between the different responses that are inherited? Um, and really do also to, to check the link to evolution, to do lab evolution experiments, just to watch evolution as it happens and to see whether small RNAs play a role in that. Are there uh, viruses that affect worms or bacteria that affect them or live, you know, as part of their microbiome? Yeah, so surprisingly, until 2010, there wasn't any known virus that infects C. elegans. In 2010, an, a natural virus that infects C. elegans that's called Orsay uh, was discovered in France. And it was discovered in a, in a wild isolate of C. elegans. Uh, but but this, the, the worm that they found was defective in small RNA production. This is why it was susceptible for the virus. The, uh, other, uh, the, the worms that we work in the lab in are more, more resistant to the viruses. And it's controversial whether there's any viral inheritance, a antiviral inheritance when it comes to this particular virus. Those have other viruses that are more artificial were shown to trigger uh, uh, transgenerational silencing by small RNAs. Uh, aside from that, from this Orsay virus, uh, there, there's no known virus that infects C. elegans, um, um, but, but there probably are some. Uh, there are viruses that are being discovered that, uh, that infect other types of uh, close relatives of C. elegans or other types of, of nematodes. So I'm sure there are also viruses, additional viruses that infect C. elegans, perhaps even viruses that evade uh, the antiviral immunity um, that's um, um, the small RNA-based antiviral immunity. There are certainly pathogens, other pathogens that infect C. elegans and, and successfully do so. And so there are different pathogenic bacteria. And, and also recently, there were uh, a few papers in the last couple of years that showed that uh, uh, exposing to worms to bacteria can uh, generate transgenerational responses in the form of small RNAs, heritable small RNAs, and also changes to the chromatin. Do, um, do C. elegans appear to have their own microbiome? you know, a commensal microbial attachment that stays with them? Yeah, so people study that, and I think the answer is yes. I think their gut uh, content reflects their environment maybe more uh, um, than, than it does in, in humans, but there still seems to be commensal bacteria that are present there. And it, we, we can, uh, in our experiments, we can control for 
uh, responses that are affected by the microbiome simply by bleaching the worms um, between generations. And this kills the, 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 the adults, the mothers, and also their, their bacteria. And just the eggs uh, survive because of their hard shell, uh, which is protected from the bleach. So this is a way to eliminate any artifacts uh, that, that might be caused by, by the microbiome. But it's possible that there's also transgeneration transmission of bacteria that, that, uh, that also lead to these interesting non-Mendelian, non-DNA-based responses. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what's the best way for, um, for people to learn more and to read papers you put out and maybe get in contact? So uh, um, there, are many, um, there are many papers. Uh, there are also uh, recent review papers that, that we and others uh, uh, wrote that could be nice, a nice entry. Uh, to this uh, field. I think we wrote, uh, me and uh, my student uh, Itamar Lev, uh, uh, a review a few years ago, two years ago in current biology, which I think is, uh, nicely summarizes a lot. Although there are also new papers. Um, so, uh, so just, and you can go on my website and see the, the papers that we published and learn from that. I recently gave a, a TEDx uh, talk in Vienna uh, that's online. And I think uh, this is a very simple way to just get the, the, the gist of it. Uh, and there are very interesting discussions on transgenerational inheritance, um, what's uh, established, what's controversial, also going on on Twitter. So I think uh, um, there's lots of action on Twitter and many very active discussions that are worth uh, looking into. Yeah, just last question. Um, do you think all this goes on in humans to a greater extent, less extent, not at all? What's your thoughts? I think we just have no idea. I think we have no idea. We can do all kinds of guessing and speculate, uh, but, uh, but this is hard to study and it's just the beginning. I mean, in sealing us, the, the, the power of studying this in worms, these worms is just the generation time is just three days. So we can follow many generations very easily and quickly. And every worm produces 250 babies. So you have the statistics to do it. And also worms, they are isogenic, they are genetically identical almost. So you can really control for nature versus nurture and DNA versus non-DNA changes. In humans, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to do that, I mean, we need to even think of how to do it. So we just have no idea. Some people speculate that it might not happen in, in humans because all kinds of reasons. For example, I mean, the chances that, uh, um, that the progeny of worms will experience the same environments that their ancestors experienced are relatively high because they don't go very far and because not so much time passes. With humans, I mean, your kids could be traveling to a different country and also it takes 20 generations and 20 generations at least separate between generations. So many things could change, but that's not a good enough reason. And, and there are things that I can imagine that would transmit nevertheless. Some of the machinery that we know uh, that enables smaller RNA inheritance in C. elegans doesn't exist in, in humans, like these RNA dependent RNA polymerase that we've shown um, in the viral paper to, to, to be important for transgenerational inheritance. But that, does, but that doesn't exclude the possibility that humans do inherit responses because there are many other feedback loops that could uh, perpetuate uh, heritable silencing aside from, from RDRP. Changes in methylation, changes in, in, uh, in different chromatin marks, many different things. So, so I think it's definitely possible. We just have no idea because it's so hard to study. Well, very good. But uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. It's a really fascinating area. We'll see what comes. So thank you. Th thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 